Master Hakuin's chant and praise of Zazen. From the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water no ice, outside us no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water, crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Sazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Sazen. Thus one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and pass clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form, and going and returning we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is that we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is the 13th of April, 2021, and um, this, this talk tonight is a continuation of one we had uh, last month, where we were uh, reading passages from a book called River of Fire, River of Water, by Tai Tetsu Uno, um, who's was, I don't know if he's still alive, but he was a professor of religion and a Pure Land practitioner and teacher. And um, the, the chapter that we're going to be reading from this, this evening, it's quite a short chapter, is called Humility. And, and it's about how to, to be open, you could say, um, to teaching that is there for us to receive. This could be from from a person, but also from circumstances or situations. Just to the, for those of you who may not have been at that first uh, talk, which was, I think, our last uh, all-day sitting, um, 
the pure in the Pure Land School, um, practic practitioners chant a mantra, a Namu Amida Butsu, which means literally uh, praise or homage to the Buddha of Limitless Night, Light, Amitabha Buddha. So one, when one take, does this practice, one's calling on Amitabha Buddha. Uh, and Amitabha made a great vow to deliver all beings who called upon him. Um, he, he vowed to um, postpone his own entry into Nirvana until everyone who, who wanted to enter his pure land, his realm, Sukhavati, um, had, had been able to enter it. And this pure land, we were talking about this last time, is, um, is the one that is mentioned in Master Hakuin's chant that we just did. He gives the, the, the sort of um, Zen take on the pure land. He says, this earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Uh, but it's my, by no means um, foreign to the pure land itself. Um, the, the, the deepest interpretations of, of this pure land are not that it is something um, far away that we have to reach, but, but something that we can realize in, in each moment. And this, this teaching, it's, it's, the pure land school is known to be um, a school of, of ordinary people because it was a practice that could be taken up at any any moment in one's life, this men, nembutsu. And this this term nembutsu is quite interesting because um, it means it, it means mindfulness of Buddha, or we could say Buddha mind. I'm pretty sure I didn't have a chance to check this, but I'm pretty sure it's the same character in this nembutsu as appears at the end of our kanongo, which we. Did. We did it in English where we said, this moment arises from mind, this moment itself is mind. Or nen nen ju shen ki, nen nen fu ri shen. This, this nen means, means thought moment, or um, sometimes thought, thought frame, very hard to translate into English. But um, the, the, the second vowel gets changed when, when up against a, a B of the butsu. But um, you can think of it as as um, uh, a moment of being Buddha, nimbutsu, mindfulness of Buddha. So anyway, now let's we'll turn to to the beginning of the of the chapter that we're going to look at. Humility. Sanskrit term for a good friend, Kalyanamitra, connotes something more than just a friend. It suggests someone or something that becomes a guide, a teacher, and an inspiration on a person's journey on the path to enlightenment. 
Even difficult circumstances can serve this purpose. Illness can be such a friend, for it teaches us humility and gratitude. The full awareness of human finitude, fragility and mortality should naturally make us humble. But it is impossible to become humble on our own, for if we think we have succeeded, at that very instance we we become prideful and arrogant. There's a there's a Tibetan saying, um, pride is like a like a ghost that follows around our good deeds. Of course, it's the, the other side of of um, the opposite of, of humility. They come together really. But let's just um, go through this and and um, look at it because there's a lot in this paragraph. First of all, this term Kalyanamitra. In Sanskrit, it it's, relates to um, beautiful, sometimes translated as beautiful or blessed or virtuous friend. Um, a friend whose influence moves us to be a better person or helps to create the conditions that a- enable us to to mature spiritually. And um, Unno here points to this being a person, which is how we might usually think about it, but also can be something that happens to us. And he mentions here sickness, illness. A while ago, I don't remember now how long ago is we introduced this healing chant and um, we, we collect names over the course of a month and do the chanting and then at the end of the month we um, renew the process by having a new, having a new sheet. And uh, I never imagined it would have filled up so fast. Everybody knows someone who is uh, suffering from illness. But we shouldn't get too glib about this notion of um, uh, illness as a... Um, as, as a, a spiritual teacher. I mean, we, it's almost a truism to think this. But I think until we have actually experienced serious illness, we may not really appreciate just how painful and difficult it can be to suddenly be up against one's own frailty and mortality. We may, we may think that we accept these things, but um, the, the, the reality of it is quite quite different. I know some at the moment who's going through very very serious illness, and on top of that, um, uh, a lot of different kinds of treatments, and some of them which seem worse than the, than the disease. Uh, now she's had a fall, she t- and she uh, wrote to me, all of this has tested every ounce of my resilience. And she also was, was saying how she was longing now for her, the old life back, a life in which she really hadn't experienced any, any serious illness um, for the whole length of her life.
she finishes here by saying about um, the, the danger even, and, and we can kind of laugh at it, of, of becoming um, prideful of our, of our um, humility. There's a, there's, a, there's a story from the Jewish tradition um, about um, a scene in, in, a, in a synagogue where there's the cantor and the rabbi, and the cantor is like the, the main person who, who um, uh, chants the, the scriptures, and the rabbi, the, the, the teacher in, that, in the synagogue, both being um, up at the, at the, um, the front of the, the synagogue um, before the Ark of the Covenant, saying, both of them saying, I am nothing, Lord. I am nothing, Lord. And, and then the janitor comes in through the back door and um, he also, from the back, he starts crying out, I'm nothing, Lord. I'm nothing, Lord. And then the cantor turns, turns to the rabbit, rabbi and says, Oh, look who's saying he's nothing. bit more about, before we continue with this, a little bit more about the, the Kalyana Mitra, spiritual friend. Um, I'm going to read a bit from a book that we have looked at in Taisho before. It's, it's called um, Running Toward Mystery and it's an um, um, autobiographical account of the early life of venerable Tenzin Priyadashi, written along with um, Zara Hushmand and um, some people may remember the story of this ten-year-old uh, Brahmin boy who who um, uh, feels a, a strong affinity with Buddhism from this age and and uh, um, the, the, this, the book tells the story of his the very many ups and downs and twists and turns of his life. But he talks um, at some length about um, Kalyanamitra. You can relate this to, to sickness as a friend, as a, as a Kalyanamitra as well. He writes, Teachers don't come to us on our own terms. The teaching, what we need to learn, does not come to us on our own terms. It's hardly an exaggeration to say that the entire Buddhist tradition, everything that has been passed down in lineage from teacher to student for two and a half millennia, is encapsulated in that. The whole point is that our pre-existing notions are a voice crying from inside the distorted world view that needs to be unlearned. As long as we insist that the lesson plan has to proceed according to our expectations, nothing a teacher says or does will make a difference. The tradition remembers countless stories of students who endured tests of patience and fortitude to engage with a teacher. 
A student meditates for 12 young, long years to be rewarded once by a single visitation. Atisha sails from India to Sumatra to find his teacher, surviving storms, shipwrecks and sea monsters. Marpa refused to teach Milarepa until he first built him a tower, stone by hand-hewn stone. Then Milarepa had to tear it down and build it three more times at the teacher's whim. And the teacher refused to accept even that fourth and final construction, a tower so sturdy that it stands today, ten centuries later, as if in witness to that this was no fairy tale. Until Milarepa had hauled out its cornerstone from underneath it and replaced it with another. So this was his last, the last of his trials before Marpa would, con, would um, teach him. It's easy to misplace the heart of these stories if we read them as advertisements for the rarity and preciousness of what is to be gained. Anything that demands so much effort must surely be worthwhile. Here we are applying a cost-benefit analysis in a domain where that logic is irrelevant, not to mention the deterrent of a bar set so high it seems the stuff of legend. The same calculation applies if we read the Sisyphean endurance as a performance of devotion, proof that the student is worthy. We are bringing a transactional mindset to the spiritual project when we say that sacrifice is, quotes, rewarded, that the prize is, quotes, worthwhile, or the student, quotes, worthy. There is fallacy built into the very structure of habitual thought and language we default to, as if there were some comparable scale of value by which one could weigh worldly patience against unworldly outcome, as if the bean-counting arbiter who keeps the ledger in the back of our mind with the final authority. The whole point of the exercise is that we can't set the terms. If we frame our terms in the language of psychology and read the student's submission to the teacher's demands as a protocol for breaking down the ego, it seems to make sense, but the translation is not entirely accurate. Western students who try to recreate the student-teacher relationship in the image of Eastern tradition too often misinterpret giving up control as giving up responsibility, as permission to regress. Far from dismantling the ego, the ego looms childishly large. Out come the shadow predictions that reshape the entire idea of what a teacher is, the missing father, the parent to be pleased the surrogate of all and everything. The transactional expectation, the quid pro quo, kicks in at a child's level. I'll submit, but only if you comfort and care for me. The student then values the relationship in proportion to access and proximity. Membership in the inner circle is the prize. Aside from the fact that the dynamic is ripe for abuse, it's ineffectual. Ego's, ego's voice undermines every experience every interaction, demanding the comfort of belonging and identity. It's a setup for the kind of disappointment that will lead us to walk away from the half-built tower. We're still dictating our terms, setting artificial conditions that sabotage the project. It never occurs to us 
that these terms could collapse. Indeed, they must collapse. They, they mu all these things must collapse because they're conditioned, and so they're unreliable. And we can take this as, as uh, expectations we have of uh, our teachers, also often expectations we have of how things should turn out in our life. There's another very simple message embedded in the old stories of patient devotion, the uncomplaining eons that Milarepa spent moving stones from one spot to another. The muscles of self-reliance grow stronger as the tower rises, while the surrounding fields are slowly cleared of stones. Patience isn't passive, or it would never move us any closer to being ready. As long as the teacher is unavailable, refusing to babysit or otherwise follow the script of our expectations, we will have to figure things out for ourselves. If we wait to be spoon-fed, we will go hungry. And then he poses a question. What if all this effort, the clearing of stones and the building of spiritual muscles, could somehow be done with joy? We think of joy as the culmination of religious experience but perhaps joy is also a key to its cultivation. When the student is ready, the teacher appears. Teachers have a way of showing up when we're primed and ready to learn. Traditionally, the starting point of renunciation is the moment of readiness, and in the Buddhist universe, renunciation is more or less synonymous, synonymous with disillusion, the loss of certain illusions about life. It's the moment when the terms have been we have been clinging to collapse. Everything falls apart. We can, um, we can think of this image of um, Milarepa building the tower as, as uh, what it can feel like sometimes with uh, our practice. And a very helpful point he makes here, patience isn't passive. Um, to realize that patience is, is, an, is an active virtue, something that we, we work at that, that it's, it's almost like it's a, um, a kind of muscle that, that grows stronger with use. talks here about the teacher being unavailable and um, refusing to babysit or otherwise follow the script of our expectations. It's, it's, um, it's good to be reminded of this as a, as a teacher that, that sometimes the best teaching comes from um, not doing anything. 
not not um, adding anything to a situation, but leaving it to the student to to um, develop him or herself to discover for him or herself he he um, talks about this the um, the, the building of spiritual muscle, muscles. It, it can be um, a trap. I think it's, this can be pretty common in, in Zen, is to fall into a place of of um, grimness. And I know that this this is something that's plagued me over the years rather than um, to practice with joy. This is where I think we do have something to learn from um, the Pure Land, in that there's this, this, the, the, this um, opening up to the primal vow of um, Amitabha Buddha. It naturally comes with a sense of gratitude. So perhaps there's a way we can we can bring this this sense of gratitude and joy to to our work. A little bit more from um, Tenzin Priyadashi. Here he's talking about um, respect for the teacher. Respect doesn't mean that emotion is absent from the relationship. A Kalyanamitra sparks love, gratitude and devotion, but then steps out of the crosshairs. The emotion is not personal. It might look like devotion to an individual on the surface, that's the student's devotion to the teacher, but at the heart of the experience is devotion to truth and love for the goals you share, enlightenment and alleviation of suffering. It's gratitude for the guidance, inspiration and encouragement. It's awe and gratitude for connecting with this extraordinary treasure that has been alive for millennia with precious opportunities to engage and learn passed on in just this way from teacher to student. It's love untainted by attachment or grasping, and which means that it comes with at least an inkling of how this love is empty, as Nagarjuna would say. It's real progress on the path. And a little bit more. This teacher-student relationship in Buddhism is not unique. 
except perhaps in the understanding of emptiness that throws the distinction between the role and the individual into high relief. Devotion to one's teacher is simply embedded in many is deeply embedded in many traditional cultures, not only in a religious context, but also in music and the arts, in any sphere where learning needs a long commitment of time and practice, and where the teacher serves as a model, embodying what the student aspires to. The forms and customs that express devotion, respect and care in these traditions have evolved over millennia, their complex, richly layered qualities are easily lost when the tradition is transplanted to the West. If a student simply parrots gestures and words of respect without sensing the deep structure they rise from originally, it's like pulling on an ill-fitting coat. It's tight in all the wrong places and the fabric itches terribly. Discipline comes, becomes a straitjacket that sparks rebellion. Resistance festers, and sooner or later the student walks away. We've seen how detrimental that has been to Western Buddhism. The remedy of an opposite extreme drops all protocol that seems foreign, but in the process abandons the respect and reverence that sets spiritual friendship apart from emotional needs. The asymmetry that smacks of patriarchy and rankles with the Western mind reminds us that this is not about the individual so much as it is about the larger role that the teacher embodies. Um, when we do a new student ceremony, um, everybody, teacher and the students, all bow to Bodhidharma, whose the scroll is, is put up in the Doksan room. And it's pointing to this very thing, um, that really what we, when we bow, when teachers, student te bows to teacher, the, the student is bowing to um, the lineage that the, the, the teacher holds, not to the, to the individual. The essential piece that gets lost in translation is the experience felt in older cultures as an aesthetics of reverence. If the ideal of Kalyanamitra is to survive, and be carried forward successfully in the modern world. It will not happen by diluting and debasing the original. Instead, we will have to create new forms to express reverence, love, and gratitude in ways that are true to the new culture's own aesthetic. We will have to explore and understand the deep structure of spiritual friendship rather than borrowing a script to address a guru in ways that feel alien, or even label the teacher a guru, for that matter. We will need to unlearn the binary thinking that insists a teacher who is not authoritarian must obviously be a buddy. The friendship that's called beautiful, blessed, and virtuous lives in a much more interesting landscape than either of these simplistic poles. Buddhism is so so young in, uh, in the West, so we're really, um, we're still trying things out. Um, years ago, when the, when the Rochester Centre had been not going for that long, maybe about f five or ten years, they had a, a Japanese uh, 
teacher come out to visit and um, describing to him various troubles, things, struggles they were having at the time. And he, he nodded and said, yep, the, two, the first 200 years are the most difficult. <laughs> so we're not even at our 20th anniversary here. And um, I guess the getting towards the, the 60 years of Zen in, in America. Um, so finding ways, finding forms, finding, finding um, traditions, developing, making traditions, it's, it's, um, it's something that we're in the, the midst of. How to have, how to have ways of expressing um, reverence and, and respect um, that are at the same time adult, healthy, mature. Um, somebody gave me a, a book by spiritual teacher Adi Ashanti um, just today and I was um, struck by um, a passage that um, is really near the front of the book. He's talking about the sort of five fundamentals that he sees of spiritual um, uh, training, so to speak. And the third one, third, what he calls a foundation, um, is never abdicate your authority. And this is in relation particularly to the teacher. He says, uh, this means that you take full responsibility for your life and never forfeit it to, over to someone else. There is no such thing as riding the coattails of an enlightened being to enlightenment itself. A failure to understand this can lead, as so many have been led, to cultish fanaticism, fundamentalism, magical thinking, disappointment, disillusionment, and or spiritual infancy. I think probably the, probably the most common of these um, that I've seen over the years would be um, disappointment and disillusionment. While it is understandable that many people project their unresolved parental issues, relationship issues, authority issues, sexuality issues, as well as God issues onto their spiritual teacher, and in brackets he says, and sometimes are encouraged to do so by unscrupulous teachers, it is essential to understand that a spiritual teacher's role is to be a good and wise spiritual guide as well as an embodiment of the truth that he or she points toward. In other words, Kalyanamitra. While there may be deep respect, love and even devotion to one's spiritual teacher, it is important not to abdicate all of your authority over your spiritual teacher or project all divinity exclusively onto them. I guess he's talking here not to beyond the Buddhist um, realm where we don't so much talk about divinity, but spiritual power, you could say, something like that. Your life belongs in your hands, not someone else's. Take responsibility for it. There's a fine line between being truly open to the guidance of a spiritual teacher and regressing into a childish relationship where you abdicate your adulthood and project all wisdom and divinity onto the teacher. Each person needs to find a mature balance 
being truly and deeply open to their spiritual guide without abdicating all of their authority. The same can be applied to a spiritual teaching. A spiritual teaching is a finger pointing toward reality. It is not reality itself. To be in a true and mature relationship with a spiritual teaching implies you, requires you to apply it, not simply believe in it. Belief leads to various forms of fundamentalist and shuts, fundamentalism and shuts down the curiosity and inquiry that are essential to, an, to open the way for awakening and what lies beyond awakening. A good spiritual teaching is something that you work with and apply. In doing so, it works on you, often in a hidden way, and helps reveal to you the truth and falseness that lies within you. Very, very clear teaching this. That what we're doing, um, hopefully in our, in our spiritual practice, is revealing the, uh, the truth that is in us. And at the same time, and often in sharp contrast, also revealing our falsities, our hypocrisies, where we, we hold back, where we um, cling to our opinions and ideas. What is it to not abdicate our own authority and yet not claim a false or self-centered authority that will lead you into delusion? I'm afraid I cannot tell you. You see, no one can tell you how to not deceive yourself. If in the deepest place within you, you want and desire truth above all else, even though you go astray in a thousand different ways, you will find yourself somewhere, again and again, being brought back to what is true. If you want, and if you do not want and desire truth above all else, well, you already know where that leads to. There are some things that, that nobody can tell us how to do it. And, and, and this not abdicating one's authority is one of those things. But if we turn, if we turn back to Uno, um, he presents, he presents, you could say, um, an aesthetic of reverence from from the Japanese point of view. He says, in East Asia, the practice of humility is encoded in social behaviour, especially in the etiquette of bowing. To bow one's head is to humble oneself, the direct opposite of asserting the ego self. Bowing is especially important when entering a dojo, a spiritual training centre, whether it be a temple, meditation hall or a martial arts class. The significance of bowing is expanded by Shunyu Ryu Suzuki, the pioneer Zen teacher in America. Bowing is a very special, serious practice. You should be prepared to bow even in your last moment. Even though it is impossible to get rid of our self-centered desires, we have to do it. Our true nature wants us to. Sometimes the disciple bows to the master. Sometimes the master bows to the disciple. A master who cannot bow to his disciple cannot bow to the Buddha. Sometimes the master and the disciple bow together to the Buddha. 
Sometimes we may bow to cats and dogs. And this is Unal commenting. An exemplary figure in this vein is the Bodhisattva never disparaging in the Lotus Sutra. The Bodhisattva constantly bowed with palms together in the act known as Gasho before anyone he encountered, for he recognized the potential for enlightenment in all beings. Bowing to all people without discrimination was his religious practice. Um, Roshi Kaplow used to talk about lowering the mast of ego. There is there's something beautiful in this wordless gesture that um, many of us discover over time uh, if we if we do um, just bow, nothing added, just just to to incline. And bring the hands palm to palm in a gesture of, of joining of opposites. In the Nembutsu, Namu bows to Amida Butsu. But not only to Amida, for one bows to all things, great and small. Namu Amida Butsu. And this expression of humility, humility and gratitude begins in the home. As Myokonen Ichitaru once said, now Myokonen is kind of a, uh, a title within Pure Land Buddhism. There's something in the, in the um, glossary at the back. It says Myokonen literally means a rare and exceptional person, generally of humble origins and with no formal education who lived the Nembutsu in daily life. Myokyonen are likened to the beautiful lotus flowers that bloom in muddy waters, but they are not saints, for they are not holy, nor are they canonized. So this is a, a guy called Ichitaro, who was, who was considered a Myokyonen. Ichitaro once said, Namu means that one's head bows down to all people. Your head bows down also to your wife and children whom you have held under your thumb up to now. Um, to remember how, what a patriarchal um, society Japan uh, is and was. As deep hearing transforms the ego self to an open self, bowing becomes a natural expression of true and real life that flows through a person. This is a lovely way of, of talking about practice. Deep hearing transforms the ego self to an open self. To listen, to, to open our, our ears and our mind is to transform ego self, contracted, tight, closed, into open self self that is receptive, mutable. The Japanese expression of grace before meals is itadakimasu, said with the head bowed and palms placed together. 
although today it may be a mere formality, the original intention was to express appreciation for a meal, saying to the food placed before one, thank you for giving up your life so that my own life can be extended. We thank the life of vegetables and plants, of fish and fowl, of animals and other living things. They give up their life so that we can extend our human life. I think this is, this is the case um, no matter what our diet is, we, even if we're, we're um, vegetarian or vegan, um, is to, to eat is to depend on others giving up their life for us to, to be nourished. Here is the realization that human beings cannot live without violating other forms of life. Within this realization is the sorrow of a limited, karma-bound being who cannot otherwise survive. There is a universe of difference between believing that humans have the right to take other forms of life with impunity and having to do so with a deep sense of shame, regret and repentance. This is a particularly um, uh, strong part of, of Japanese culture, I believe, this sense of shame. But um, it's not something that is entirely f foreign to us, we think, especially now. Um, I've heard from more than one person uh, about people experiencing a deep um, sense of shame and regret and repentance over what we humans have done to the planet. Um, so there's various terms um, coined, eco-anxiety for instance. And it would be wrong to, to, to somehow try to get rid of that feeling. There's, there's good reason to, to feel this, this, this shame and sadness. He continues, the least a person can do then is to be grateful and not waste nature's gifts. When we see that human beings do not occupy a special privileged place in the web of life, then humanity and humility and gratitude should be natural and spontaneous. Yet the difficulty in arriving at this understanding is immense. Why is that? Why is the difficulty in arriving at this so immense? Well, we're deeply conditioned to um, put ourselves front and centre. And it's, it's the process of realising that when it, we're uh, only front, front and centre in the way that every other being in the universe is front and centre, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't always come naturally, this, this realisation. It could be um, painful. He continues, The finite nature of human existence is a fact of life. We are limited 
and restricted physically, intellectually and emotionally. We cannot fly and soar into the sky like a bird, nor can we swim and stay underwater like a fish. No matter how brilliant one may be, a person cannot fathom another's feelings, not even those of loved ones. No one really knows anything about life after death in spite of countless speculations. We find it difficult to control jealousy, anger, self-doubt, insecurity and fear, even though we realize that they are self-defeating. We aspire to be always loving, but in reality, we are inconsistent and undependable. The more we aspire to live an exemplary life, ethically and religiously, the more we are made aware of our karmic limitations. This, this is uh, how it is, even though um, we may not like to face it. It's, it's, they call it in, in AA uh, conducting a moral, moral inventory to, to really be honest about, about uh, our inner thoughts and inner life and realize that we um, really know so little about the inner life and thoughts of others and feelings. goes on to talk about um, Confucius who um, acknowledged his own limitations. He, he says, Uno says, comments on this, in brief he admits his lack of wisdom, humanity and courage, a sign of his greatness as a teacher of humanity. If we do get some insight into our own, own limitations, if we can have the courage to do that and it's helped by realizing there's also this other side of us that is limitless and spacious, then it's likely that we'll be less judgmental, able to be more compassionate of, of, of others' shortcomings. Think of the, the Lord's Prayer where in Christianity where um, one asks, God to forgive, um, forgive, how does it go? <laughs> yes, to give up for trespasses and those who trespass against us. You know, if we, if we can be honest about ourselves, then we're able to um, uh, forgive ourselves and forgive others. When we realize that we are all sustained by both visible and invisible forces in our world, we should be humble and grateful. But the reality of human nature is that our karmic impulse goes against both humility and gratitude. To acknowledge this truly is to experience the sadness and sorrow of what it means to be human. But deeper and profounder than our feelings is the heart of great compassion that takes us in.
the primal vow ultimately transforms the hopelessly self-centered and arrogant person into one who manifests true humility and gratitude. I'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gaze beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless fine passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless flying passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of